Well, it's good to see everybody uh, here today. I know many of you have either been away. Some of you have been sick. Well, thank God you are either back from your holiday or else God has healed you and you are well enough to come to church today. So it's just, it's really good to see all of you here today. And of course, we continue to pray for those who can't be with us for several reasons. Uh, I know that this is a, a weekend holiday, and so we imagine there are probably many that would be traveling today, but I'm just glad you're here. And if they are, if there are people away today, you can call them up today and say, hey, don't forget, this sermon is going to be on YouTube, so you can still listen to it later on from wherever you are. And we do thank God for such things as technology that uh, our church members can hear us from wherever they are, and the whole world, if they tune in, can also listen in as well. So we thank God for that. Today we're going to go back into our, our series. If you're new with us, or if you haven't been here for a while, we've been studying the book of Romans. And today we are coming to the last section of chapter 1. And I'm going to read today several verses. Verses 18, which we preached on last week, Verses 18 all the way to verse 32. Today's sermon is titled, Falling. Falling. And I hope you can see why it's called that in today's sermon. But before we read today, I just want to remind you, last week we read that verse that says, Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed. And we talked about that wrath of God. And we talked about the seriousness of it the severity of it, and the certainty of it. And we have seen how God in times past poured out his wrath, and God says he will do it again. There is still coming a day where God will judge the world in wrath. And we are called to be ready for such a day to come. But what we read today, we're not just looking at God's wrath that was poured out somewhere in the past. And we're not looking at God's wrath that will come one day. This portion of Romans says that God is pouring out his wrath today. In a certain measure, in certain judgment and in wrath, God is dealing with sinners by way of judgment and wrath. Keep that in mind today. Also keep this in mind. That while the book of Romans, this is a letter that was sent from Paul to the church in Rome. And so we can, of course, say that Paul wrote down these words. Yes, that's true. But remember this. Please remember this. All Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation, all Scripture is the very Word of God. All Scripture is God-breathed. So when you read the Word of God, this is the Word of God. This is the Spirit of God speaking. Yes, He spoke through Paul, but don't forget, this are, these are the words of the Spirit Himself. It is God-breathed. And so when you come to the Bible and you read something, you say, I don't really like that. I don't really agree with that. I don't think God should have done that. Just remember this. Either you are correct, or the Spirit of God is correct. And let me spoil it for you. The Holy Spirit will always be in the right. And we have to conform ourselves to what He says. Many things I say today, you might think to yourself, I don't know if I agree with that. Doesn't matter. This is what the Spirit of God says. Are you with me? Do you believe what I'm saying? All Scripture is the breath of God. They are the very words of God. So with that, let's all turn to the Word of God, Romans chapter 1. We'll begin today again by reading from verse 18 all the way to verse 32. And in today's sermon called Falling, we will sort of expound upon these words. Yes, from Paul, but the very words of the Spirit of God. Stand with me, if you will. Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 
because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness, in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forevermore. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Amen. You may be seated. Perhaps nowhere else in Scripture does the Holy Spirit speak so clearly against sin, falling. As we discuss today's message, and as you go over it this week, I want you to picture something in your mind. And I'm asking you to do that because it's what I picture. Remember, there was a prophet in the Old Testament named Jonah. And the Bible says that God spoke to Jonah and told Jonah to go into Nineveh and preach to them that judgment was coming and they needed to be saved. But Jonah didn't even acknowledge that God spoke to him. He didn't even say anything to God. He just ran to get a far, as far away from God as he could. It's as though he pretended God never spoke, and Jonah fled. And the Bible says he went down. Because when you run from God, the only direction to go is down. He went down to a city of Tarshish. He found a ship and went down into the ship. And when he went into the ship, he went down into the lowest parts of that ship, and then they set sail. And of course, he can't run from God. God sent out a storm. The people on the boat were terrified from the wrath of God on that storm, on those waves. They found out that it was Jonah. He was the problem. And Jonah said, you can solve everything. Just throw me off the boat and let me drown and die in the waters. In Jonah's mind, it's better for me to drown than to listen to God. And so they threw him overboard. And Jonah went down and down and still down until he was in the bottom of those waters. But from that place, the very depths of the waters, God saved Jonah. But I want you to remember that and picture that in your mind. Jonah sinking. Jonah falling into greater and greater depths. I believe 
in the text of Scripture we just read. It's describing a God who holds us up, a God who sustains us. And I'm not just talking about holding up Christians. God holds up all people. Because I believe that if God were to just walk away from the world altogether, we would have destroyed ourselves long, long ago. But why don't we destroy ourselves? Why have we not already disappeared from existence? I believe it's because God holds us up. Some say he restrains evil. That's, that might be true. But I think in what we read today, it's God that holds us up. Mercifully holds all things up. But what happens when a person refuses to recognize the mercy and the goodness of God? What happens when, like Jonah, they run away and want nothing to do with God? What happens if God begins to let go? Paul wrote this letter to the Roman church while he was in a place called Corinth. And it was in Corinth that Paul witnessed so many of the of wickedness and of perversions that he speaks about right here in what we read. He saw it with his own eyes in Corinth. And when we read these verses, we see that individuals, societies, and nations are being described. And they are being described as falling. Falling as God begins to let them go and give them over and give them up. And what happens, what results in all that is that man becomes what man is, wicked in sin, and they fall like Jonah. It says in verse 18, again, this was the verse that we went over last week, for the wrath of God is revealed. Even now it is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Ungodliness is that one who does not acknowledge God. The one who's ungodly does not respect God, has no fear of God, and wants nothing to do with God. And what does that lead into? Unrighteousness. Unrighteousness is not only sinning against God, but it's man sinning against man. People sinning against people. And it says that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. There is the truth of God. But what do men do with that truth? They suppress it. What does that mean? It means they hold it down and pretend it's not there. They're holding down the knowledge of God. They're holding down the truth that they are sinners who will be judged unless they're saved. But they hold it down and pretend it's not real. Like last week, we mentioned how there are people in the last days who will pretend to think that God has never judged the world and he never will in the future. Why do they pretend such things? So they can continue living in the sin that they live in and have no consequences of it. They suppress the truth. They know what they're doing. When I've gone to the pool with my daughters, Amelia and Ella, sometimes we'll bring a basketball and set up a basketball goal and in the pool we'll try to, you know, play basketball in the pool. Well, over some time, if not paying attention, one of them, probably Amelia, will take that basketball and shove it under the water. And when I'm looking around and I say, where'd the basketball go? I don't know. But when I look at Amelia, she's like this. And I say, Amelia, where's the basketball? I don't know. And of course, she's holding it down. And it's obvious she's holding it down. You can't hold that basketball under the water without knowing it. You can't do it by accident. You've got to try as hard as you can to pretend I'm not doing this and yet everybody can see that you are evidently holding down that ball. That's what these words mean. To suppress the truth of God. You are pretending there's no God or you are pretending that God is not who he says he is. You are pretending that you are not sinner. You are pretending that there is no judgment and you make excuses for what you do and you pretend no one will do anything about it. What does man need to do? 
Simply let go of that basketball. Just let go and the truth will surface. It can't be hidden. That's what it means. They suppress the truth. Ungodly, unrighteous, and they pretend to not know God. Pretend. And because of these things, the wrath of God is made known in individuals, in societies, and in nations. So let's begin with these three points from these verses. Number one, we're going to look at the reason for God's wrath. Why is God pouring out wrath today? Number two, we're going to look at the revelation of God's wrath. What is it exactly that he is doing to show his wrath? And number three, number three is what we all hope for. Number three is the remedy from God's wrath. The remedy. So let's begin with number one. What is the reason for God's wrath? Why? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. That word manifest means evident. God has made it evident to all people that there is a God and he created the world. All people have been shown that there is a God. All people know these two things. All people know the power of God and all people know the person of God. Paul says people, they know about him and they know him. He says in verse 19, I'm sorry, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In other words, Paul is saying, Creation itself is the evidence of the great creator God. And if you just consider creation, you can know of God. You can know something about him. What is it? He says you can know his eternal power and you can know his Godhead, meaning his majesty and his glory and his beauty. Anybody who looks at the whole world from the universe to the things here on the earth, they know that this creation has a creator and that creator is powerful in what he's done and he is wise and he is beautiful and he is glorious. He is the majesty on high. Everyone knows these things. It's just like if you were to look at a painting, you can know something about the painter. Even if you've never met him or her, even if you never read anything about them, you can still so know something about them by what they paint. Now, I'm not a, a fan of art. I've never been. I took an art history class in college, and it was the biggest mistake of my college career. I have no interest whatsoever in art. And, I, and if you do, wonderful. I know they've had art galleries here in Samarang, and, and some of you enjoy those things, and, and that's good. You should enjoy the beauties of what man can do. It's, it's a good thing. It's a gift from God. Nevertheless, I don't enjoy art. But when I look at a painting, even if it's painted by someone who lived hundreds of years ago, even me with no knowledge of what it means to paint, I can see beauty in somebody's work. And I can say, I don't know who that person is, but I know that they're skillful. They're talented. They know how to use colors. They know how to make something that draws me into it. They know how to make something that actually helps me remember things about life. They can stir up emotions in your heart by what you see. That's an amazing talent. And when we look at creation, creation tells us the same things about our wonderful God. I just listened to a program the other day of a reporter interviewing a famous artist. And the reporter said, you know, I know nothing about art. Can someone like me 
look at a painting and truly appreciate it? I mean, without education, without knowing who the artist is, and without even knowing how to paint myself. How can someone like me, you know, come up with some of the thoughts and the feelings and the suggestions of the painter? And that painter said it's very simple. Everyone, all they have to do is look. Just look. That's all it takes. You may not know everything, but just take one look and you will see things like amazing beauty, colors, and things that stir up emotions. Paul says, just look at creation. If you think a painting is beautiful, look at what God has done, not only on the earth, not only in our physical bodies, but throughout the whole universe. Look at that masterpiece. Everyone who sees it knows that there is a God. Now, I know if I were to say to you right now, and you might be thinking about it, if I said to you right now, but how many of you today, if I asked you to, if I asked you to raise your hand, if you know someone who says, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in any God, I wonder how many of you would raise your hand and say, yes, I know someone like that. I know a lot of people like that. And they say with all their heart, there is no God. They believe it. The Holy Spirit says, you know no such thing. You know no such person. The Holy Spirit says there is no atheist. There's no such thing. Why? Because all people know there is a God. All people know it. The atheist looks at the painting and says, there's no painter. Those colors, that paint, they just splashed out of nowhere onto a canvas and created that beauty. There is no painter. Now, what would you say to somebody like that? If you had a beautiful painting here and someone said, oh, I believe nobody painted that, what would you say? Would you ask them, how can I prove it to you? How can I prove to you that somebody actually did this, that somebody took paint, put it on the brushes and did that? Would you ask those questions? No. The only question you would ask is, what is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? That you can look at a masterpiece and say, no one created that. It's the same when they look at all the creation of God and say there is no God. They don't believe that. They don't believe there's no God. They're lying. They're pretending. The question is, why? are they doing that? Why are they trying to pretend there is no God? The power of God is made known. And there is no such thing as an atheist. But the Holy Spirit not only says we can know about God and know about His power and about His majesty, we also know Him. We know Him in a much more personal way. Paul says in verse 21, because although they knew God, they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They knew God. They can look at creation and not only know the power of God and the majesty of God, but they can also know other personal things like the mercy of God and the kindness and the goodness of God in creation. You know, I am very privileged that I have an office in my home where I do most of my studying, but all of my studying, and I've got windows that look on the side of my property where there's grass, and every day I love watching birds. Birds are my favorite animal, I think, in the world. And there are all kinds of various birds that come to my property because they are eating, they're finding insects. And what's amazing to me is that these little creatures, so amazing, they know exactly when certain insects come. And when they arrive, certain birds come and find them and eat them. They know how to hunt. They know how to work together to catch something. They know when it's mating season, those birds will come and they'll start plucking grass out of my yard and plucking the long grass that grows because they're building nests. 
They know after the mating season, the females are going to lay eggs and they're going to prepare a nest to prepare for the future of their offspring. And I think, my goodness, how beautiful. I mean, that's birds, birds. How wonderful and good God is. How do they know to do what they do? How do they know these things? Jesus says about these little, seemingly insignificant birds that when one falls to the ground, when one dies, your father knows it. God watches over those birds. And because they know their creator watches over them, they never worry. Don't you wish we were more like birds? To know that our God is good and merciful and watches over us, and therefore, we will not worry? But just look at creation. God is good and merciful. Have you ever stopped to consider his goodness? Because Paul says, even though they knew God, they don't glorify him as God. They don't praise him, and they are not thankful. What about you? Have you ever stopped to consider how good God has been? Not with just the natural world that he has made, but in your life. The way God has provided, the way God has healed, the way God has saved you, the way God has taken care of your children. Have you ever stopped for a moment and just say, God, you have been so good, and I glorify you. I praise you. I thank you for all that you've done. That's what God deserves. Or is it possible for us, do you think? Is it possible that we somehow think that we have what we have because of ourselves? Do you think it's our gifts and strengths and our talents and wisdom and education that brought us to where we are today? Are you the one to be glorified for what you have? May it never be so. May we always remember we are what we are, and we are who we are because of the mercy, kindness, gracious, and goodness of our God. And Paul says of these people, their foolish hearts, the ones who want to pretend that there is no God or pretend that he's not who he says he is, their foolish hearts, as hard as it is to believe, become even more darkened, even more darkened. And it gets to the point where these people will profess. They profess that they're smart, that they're wise, that they've got it all figured out. They've got the right philosophy. They've got the right religion. They've got the right way of living. And they say, just do what I do. Just do what I say. I've got it all figured out. Paul says they say they're wise, but the Spirit of God says they become fools. Fools. And they change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Fools, the Spirit says. Fools because they either look at creation and say, there is no God. Or they look at creation and they worship it. They worship the creation. They give no glory or thanks to the Creator. Instead, they worship the creation. And they'll even worship what they make with their own hands and set it on the table, and they'll say, you are God. And I suppose if they do that, they can make sure that that God agrees with what they want in life. And if he doesn't, well, I can knock him off the table and make a new one. Either way, the one who says there is no God or the one who worships creation, both are idolaters. Because the one who says there is no God, he makes himself God. He makes himself the one who sits on the throne. He makes himself the one that determines his course of life, and he does as he pleases. The one who worships the image the image of creation, they are taking what is God and what belongs to God, and they're changing it into something else. They take the glory and the majesty 
the beauty and the goodness of God. And they say, we don't really like that God. Because that God says some pretty tough things in Romans chapter 1 about our sin. So instead of that God, we're going to change him into this God, or that God, or that God. They change God into what they want him to be. And they make him say what they want him to say. Why? Because they're sinners. And they want to live in their sin. Paul says, therefore, verse 24, therefore, God also gave them up. He lets them go. He gives them up to uncleanness. In the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forevermore. And he says, Amen. God lets them go. And when he's talking about uncleanness, the lust of their hearts, and dishonoring their bodies, He's speaking specifically about sexual immorality. Because there's something about idolatry that leads into sexual immorality. Where there is idolatry, there is sexual perversion and immorality. So what follows ungodliness and idolatry is that God begins to let them go and they fall deep into their sin. And God allows man to do what man so desires to do. And out of this grows all kinds of sexual sin and immorality. Sexual sin begins to run rampant in a society that rejects God. And even in the history of the world we see this. Thousands of years ago in the land of Canaan, there are people that worship the God of Molech. They changed the glory of God into a statue of a man, part man, part beast, and they worshiped him, and they said, you are God. And if they worshiped this God, they believed he promised that they would be prosperous and that their families would grow. And so what did they do in worship? They were involved with sexual immorality. And in their sexual activity, it was a worship to their false God. And what came next? They took their babies and they burned them in fire for Molech, sacrificing their own children. This is what happens when people refuse to believe. And God is angry, and rightfully so. Number two, the revelation of God's wrath. What is God doing to reveal this wrath? Well, we just saw how he's giving them up to their uncleanness. And now, in verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. What is this saying? God is giving them up, letting them go to do what they want to do. And it is vile passion, wicked, lustful passion. And when he says that the women exchange the natural use for what is against nature, he's talking about women leaving what God designed. The intimacy and sexual relationship between one man and one woman, the husband and the wife. And the women are leaving what God has made and going to what is unnatural. Lesbianism. And it continues. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. The sexual immorality begins with what we might call heterosexual sexual immorality. But as people fall deeper in sin, it gets worse. And they commit 
homosexuality. When people or a society abandons the truth of God, when they want nothing to do with God, then God, in His wrath and judgment, lets them go. And He gives them over to their own lustful thoughts and vile passions. And so what do you have in such a society that rejects God? You have sexual immorality. From pornography to adultery to teenagers having sex to homosexuality and to transgenderism. Now today, society tells you and they tell your children that these things are beautiful, that we should celebrate these things, and this is what real love is all about. What does God say about these things? What does God say about pornography, adultery, sex before marriage, homosexuality, and transgenderism? What does God say? Well, in these past four verses, he calls it uncleanness, lust, dishonor, vile passion, against nature, shameful, and deserving the penalty of judgment and wrath. Somebody is wrong. Either the world who celebrates these things or God who speaks against them. This world, people, and so many societies are falling like a rock to the bottom of the ocean. And let me just say this. You know, I, I'm from America. I grew up in America. I went to school in America. And I spent more than almost half my life in America. I don't know, much more than half my life. I'm sorry. Much more than half my life in America. And I remember going to school. The public school in America is run by the government. Well, I remember in school, especially when I was in high school, teenage sex was so common. In fact, if you weren't a part of that crowd, then you weren't normal. There was teenage sex, and there was also pregnancy among so many young girls, 13 years old, 14 years old, 15 years old. And there was also homosexuality. And I remember in the 80s and also in the 90s, there was the big fear of HIV and the AIDS virus. But I remember in high school when all these things were happening and it was a huge problem, the government through the school came up with the solution. What we're going to do to help out is we're going to teach children about safe sex as though there's any such thing as safe sex. You want to know what safe sex is? The relationship between a husband and a wife. One man, the husband, one wife, the woman. Anything outside of that is not called safe sex. Anything outside of that is dangerous and it will destroy people's lives. But they wanted to teach safe sex, which meant they brought organizations into our school to pass out condoms to the boys and to give the young girls literature about how they could get free birth control. And so in my school, there was a young group of kids, a small organization, mostly Christian, and they said, listen, they approached the principal and they said, can we also help? Because we just want to offer ourselves to counsel and to help other young people and to teach them abstinence, to teach them the purity, to teach them respect, to teach them to truly love each other and to not go outside what God has said. Let us teach children not to actually commit sexual sin. And the school shot down the idea because they said, first of all, if you start talking about biblical things, all you're going to do is offend people. Secondly, you can't tell people what to do. And if people want to have sex as many times and with whoever they want, they will do what they want to do. And we should not get in the way. And so what has happened in America especially? How have they dealt with these problems of teenage sex and pregnancy, 
homosexuality and diseases that come from all these things, what have they done? They try to teach what they call safe sex and just in case a young girl still gets pregnant, well, we have the easy option. All you've got to do is kill your child. Abortion. For 15-year-olds, for 14-year-olds, doesn't matter. And the great thing about it, young people, your parents never have to know. We'll keep it between you and the government. And so now today, these things have grown also into transgenderism, where a man can simply say one day, I am now a woman, which means we all now have to pretend that he is actually a woman. We have young people today that don't even know what pronoun belongs to them. We have a young girl who will say, I really don't know. So maybe I'm a they, maybe I'm a she. So you really want me to call you, young lady, a they? You really expect me to pretend you are more than one person? A young boy will come out and say, I really don't know what I am, so call me a, a he and a she at the same time. Make up your mind. What are you talking about? What is this nonsense? They are suppressing the truth, and they know they are. And now it has led way to what's called pedophilia, which is growing more than ever before, especially in America, where a 40-year-old man says, I am in love with a seven-year-old girl. And the society says that if the young girl says, I'm also in love with him, then who can get in the way of love? This is sick. All these things are wicked. And it's the result of the judgment of God. Verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, they don't want to think about God. They want to push Him out as far as possible. And so, God gave them over to a debased mind, a foolish mind, a sinful mind, to do those things which are not fitting. He lets people go. And a mind that is emptied of God and His Word is a mind that is enslaved to wicked and perverse thoughts. To do what man wants to do. Reject God and live in sin. And so God gives them up and gives them over to their sin. And beyond sexual immorality, Paul gives us this list. Look at it in verse 29 to 31. They are filled with all unrighteousness, which includes, top of the list, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters. They hate God. They're violent, proud, boasters. They invent evil things. They are disobedient to their parents. They're undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. In other words, when man becomes what man is, as God lets go, man is evil in his thoughts, evil in his words, evil in his character, evil in everything he does, according to the Spirit of God. Our last verse today says that all these people, they all, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. Not only do they do the same thing, but they also approve and they celebrate others who do it and practice them. Consider what the Holy Spirit just said to us in these verses about what everyone knows. Everyone knows. The Bible says, number one, they know that there's a God. They know He's the Creator. They know He's full of power, goodness, and mercy. They know of Him, and they know Him. And finally, they know that there is judgment 
There is judgment and there is death. And they deserve that judgment. They know. Nobody will ever get to heaven and face God on the throne and see that wonderful, glorious face. Nobody will ever say, who are you? We all know who he is. Everyone knows. The problem is they suppress that truth because they want to sin. They love their sin. And they will not have a holy God tell them what to do. Last, falling further and further, drowning in this abyss of ungodliness and unrighteousness, in their outright rejection of God, what can be done? What can be done for such a person? Is there any hope? Is there any remedy of the wrath of God? The good news is, there is. What can be done for a person who has not acknowledged God and spends his or her life running away from God, running away from truth, pretending it's not really there, and as a result they're falling deeper and deeper into the abyss of that ocean? Well, let me tell you this. Although we come to the end of our text today, and it ends with bad news, that these people know there's judgment and they deserve death. They know it. That's bad news. But every time you read Romans, I want you to remember this. Every time you come to something, you say, wow, this is awful. Oh, this is horrible. And this convicts me of such sin that I'm involved with. God is angry and God will judge. Every time you come to those truths, remember the theme of Romans. Remember the main theme of what Paul is preaching. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Do you remember it? Paul could look out on a society filled with sexual immorality and, adult and idolatry and all kinds of wickedness. And he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for anyone who believes. We must remember God is able to save even the sinner who has found the bottom of the depths of the ocean. Is there any hope? Well, I suppose they have the same amount of hope as Jonah did when he sank to the bottom. So now let me end today's sermon by reading what happened to Jonah. Would you turn to it with me? Jonah has been cast into the waters and he has drowned in those waters. He sank to the bottom of that ocean. And then watch what happens in chapter 2, beginning at verse 2. Watch what happens to a man who has fallen so far. He said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. And he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. And then Jonah speaks to us, and he says, those who regard worthless idols they forsake their own mercy. When you run from God, you are forsaking the very one who is good and merciful and able to save. Verse 9, But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed 
Salvation is of the Lord. Amen. Musicians, would you come? Again, as Paul wrote these words, he was in the place called Corinth at the time. And he saw many of these evils right before, he's, right before his eyes. And he looked around and saw all these things, and yet do you know that Paul planted a church right there in Corinth? Right in the midst of that wicked society, he planted a church. And Paul would later write, and he lets us know, that that church in Corinth, they were filled with believers who were once idolaters and homosexuals and adulterers and murderers and liars. And then Paul says, but then they were saved. Jesus saved them, justified them, sanctified them, and now they are the children of God. No matter what we see in this world today, we must have hope because salvation is of the Lord. Amen? And he can save anyone, no matter how far they have fallen. And so as we sing a song here today and end this service, I want you to consider not just looking out at the world, look to yourself. Are you suppressing God in your own life? Are you pretending that there's that sin in your life? Are you pretending that God is not angry at that sin? Are you pretending it's okay for you to do it? Don't make that mistake. Simply let go of that foolishness. Allow that truth to surface and be forgiven of your sin. Don't fall. Pray that God keeps you in his mighty hands. Let's stand together and sing. Brother Jesse.